Welcome. This is Craig Applegath, and this is the 21st Century Imperative Podcast, the podcast series that explores the insights and approaches of scientists, designers, planners, engineers, business entrepreneurs, and other successful change makers who are finding effective ways to meet the three critical challenges posed by the 21st Century Imperative. These are how will we continue to live on our planet without destroying our biosphere? How will we repair and regenerate the environmental damage we have already caused? And how will we adapt to the escalating impacts of climate change? Each episode will feature an interview with an individual whom I think you will find not only inspiring, but also very relevant to helping you answer the question, what can I do to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative? I first met Ryan when we were both presenting at a CIGBC conference some years ago. What impressed me most about Ryan's presentation was his deep understanding about not just how to design a sustainable, low-carbon building, but the implications of the life cycle of the building. And this was when life cycle costing was not a widely used tool. Ryan is also one of the most knowledgeable people I know now doing carbon accounting in Canada. He is currently the chair of the Embodied Carbon Network's 80-plus member policy working group, as well as a member of the Canadian Green Building Council's Zero Carbon Steering Committee. As the founder and chief operating officer at Mantle, an interdisciplinary climate change consultancy based in Toronto, Ryan and Mantle's team of lawyers, engineers, and green finance experts assist public and private sector clients decrease their carbon footprint and devise strategies to transition to a low carbon and climate adjusted future. Ryan has worked on dozens of green building and neighborhood projects with leading Canadian and European architects, developers, and property management firms, and spent three years working in the leading Nordic green building scene in Helsinki, Finland. Ryan holds a master's degree in applied science in civil engineering and environmental engineering from the University of Toronto, is a licensed engineer in the province of Ontario, and holds a lead accredited professional designation in neighborhood development. In today's podcast interview, I talked to Ryan about the challenges and opportunities for reducing both operating and embodied carbon in new buildings and his thoughts on climate change adaptation. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Ryan, thanks so much for making time to do this interview today. You are doing some really exciting work in the quantification of carbon and developing strategies to reduce both operating and embodied carbon. So I've really been looking forward to our conversation today. Why don't we start off by you telling listeners how you ended up as one of Toronto's go-to experts on carbon? Sure. Well, thanks, Craig, for having me. I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. Uh, We've had a few interesting talks over the years, so it's nice to be able to uh, record one of these and maybe go back and listen to it uh, and have other people join the conversation. I'll give a bit of a background about my story, how I got here. So I actually went to school for civil engineering, uh, structural design, because I've always, since I was a little kid, been really interested in buildings, how we create the cities that we live in. And I thought, you know, I want to be involved in creating those cities. So I went to school at Queen's for structural design, civil engineering. I went and had my first summer job with a large engineering firm in Toronto and I walked in the room and there was a whole floor of old white men, because that's what they were, (laughs) using the same textbook that I had just written and examined. What year was that? 
uh, 2005, it would have been. Yeah, I guess old white man. Yeah. <laughs> and they all were using the, the concrete design book and the steel design book that yeah. I had just passed yeah. my exams. Yeah, I remember I using thought, that. Yeah, I thought, is that good? Is this going to be my whole life? Is using those two textbooks? So I said, okay, there's got to be more to creating cities than that. So I went back and did my master's degree in civil engineering at U of T in sustainability and green buildings. That was kind of my schooling background. I started working as a green building consultant in the LEED world when LEED certification, which is, you know, green building, uh, a voluntary standard on green buildings. I started in that rate when it was just a new thing, really. There was two people at our firm that did green design when I started. And over the seven years that I worked there, there was 50 people at the end of the seven years all across Canada doing these LEED buildings everywhere. Before you went back for the, the second degree, had you started to become concerned about climate change? Because I remember that it was really 2000, 2001, that the notion of sustainability actually started to become concretized by, uh, I think USGBC had mm-hmm. just come into being in 2001, I think. Yeah, yeah. So were yeah, you sort was... of hearing about it and it looked like that was something that looked exciting, you were concerned, or what, yeah. what was a... Yeah, I don't actually remember an event or a story to tell about that. I, I always recall being um, climate, you know, aware or, you know, aware about the environment. I actually grew up on a farm for half my childhood. So I think that gave me a connection with nature and um, being really interested in, in natural systems and things like that. And so when I went back and did my master's, I really wanted to tie that into my first degree and tie in the natural systems and the sustainability into the work I was doing. So I was lucky enough to find a job where I was able to do that. Worked as a green engineer, doing lead certifications, working with some of the most innovative green projects across Canada, because I worked with one of the large engineering firms that was specialized in that. And I had a really good sense of what was going on in terms of what was the best in the industry. And unfortunately, most people weren't doing anything in green building, but at least I had some exposure to that. And then my life kind of took a turn because I moved to Helsinki, Finland, which is uh, very advanced in sustainability and green buildings. My partner got a job offer over there and I thought, you know what? When am I going to get an opportunity to right. just go to, to go to the other side of the world, do something crazy? Uh, I, I was still young enough that I could make rash decisions like that. So I quit my great job that I loved and was, <laughs> uh, just got a promotion and all that great stuff. And I walked in and said, you guys, sorry, guys, I'm leaving. Uh, I'm going to move to Finland, just, you know, out of the out of the blue. And I like to tell people that's where I saw the future because yeah. they're 10 years ahead of us in terms of sustainability on a lot of fronts. And that's really where I got into the details of embodied carbon. And that's something that you mentioned in your intro that we're going to probably talk a lot more about today. But basically, um, just for the listeners who aren't aware, embodied carbon is basically uh, the carbon that it takes to get a material to where it is or yeah. or the or the carbon associated with yeah. using that material yeah, so all product. the co2 spit out as a product is being manufactured and transported exactly. and, and constructed exactly so we can talk about that in another part of the podcast but but that's really really where i got exposed to that and i thought this is the next big thing in green buildings because i had been in those projects all across canada on the greenest projects in canada and no one was talking it was about all about that. operation and it was carbon. all about operational yeah. carbon and i thought no one is talking about 
what's the carbon footprint of the steel and the concrete and the glass? And look, look around Toronto and there's tons of material coming in and we're not really regulating or minimizing the carbon of those materials at all. So it was really a wake up call, worked there for three years. And then I moved back to Canada, decided, you know what, if I can make a go at it, at this career in a place where I don't speak the language and don't know anyone, and there's not very much construction happening relative to Toronto, I thought oh, I, I should be able to do all right if I go back to Toronto. So uh, after three years, I moved back here and um, me and my sister actually started a consulting company together. So my sister and business partner, um, she's a lawyer. And as I said, I'm an engineer. So we have a very different background. Pe lawyers and engineers typically don't start companies together, but um, we thought that we, and she, she actually was working for over a decade as one of Canada's first climate lawyers. Oh, fantastic yeah, combination. Yeah, so she used to, she originally was working on Bay Street for, as an environmental lawyer, which includes things like spills and landfills that she was not at all interested in. She was solely interested on carbon reduction through law. So she went to the UN meetings and the COP in Copenhagen and yeah. all these meetings. She was involved in that from when she was quite young in the youth movement. So she actually started Canada's first climate law firm. Um, so she was doing that for about a decade when I was doing all of my adventures in Finland and learning about embodied carbon. And then when I came back in 2015 and said, you know what, there's a need for someone to really focus on this issue. And she saw that there was a need for an interdisciplinary approach to a lot of the discussions because we would get together at family events and I would talk about my green building world and she would talk about her green policy world. And we didn't really know anything about each other's yeah. worlds because we were in these silos. Right? And as you said, uh, we go to these events and we see all the same people, but I wasn't seeing the people in her silo and she wasn't seeing the people in mine. So we thought, you know what, we really need to break down those walls and do an interdisciplinary approach. So uh, we started our firm Mantle three years ago and it's been going really well and we're starting to, or not starting to, but we are making a big impact, I believe, um, by translating between those two worlds, bringing technical expertise to bear on policy and and, and stakeholder discussions, but also vice versa, bringing, bringing that broader lens of public policy into more technical discussions with manufacturers of construction materials, And I for can example. remember at the time, three years ago, when you were forming, having a lunch with you and you talking about what you're doing, and I thought, wow, that's so forward thinking. And this is really important. And I really hope that clients are going to buy into this. And now I don't think there is anyone not talking about embodied carbon. And life cycle analysis. Mm -hmm. So I think it's in that three years, it's become something that was way sort of on the cutting edge to now it's coming right into the middle. Mm -hmm. So good timing. Yeah. And there's, there's a few reasons for that. If, if we, you want to dig into a little bit of it right now. Um, so the discussion in the past, I'd say five or six years ago, or maybe 10 years ago was People knew there was an environmental impact associated with the materials, but our buildings were so inefficient 10 year, even 10 years ago that the environmental impact and the carbon of the materials was dwarfed by, by the operating by carbon. The operating yeah. carbon. Yeah. So we know it's, it takes carbon to get the concrete and steel here, but we, use a, we emit a lot more carbon from the energy of heating the building, cooling the building, having the lights on, having all our computers on. And every year that there's more and more of that operating carbon when there's only one, one output of the embodied carbon at the initial construction. So that used to be the case. And when you're presented with those facts, you'd say, let's focus, let's on, focus the operating. on the operating. Yep. And that's what people did. Yep. And that's what we should have done. That was the right thing to do at the time in that situation. But we've been really, really good at reducing our operating carbon. 
every few years, there's a new building code that comes out, as, as you're very familiar with, that has more strict environmental and, and more strict uh, energy efficiency requirements. That's one of the reasons that operation has gone, operating carbon has gone down so much. But the other reason that not a lot of people think about is that our energy is becoming greener as well. So it's becoming less carbon intensive. Listeners in Ontario probably heard about the coal fire phase out. So we no longer have any coal associated with our electricity generation in Ontario. So our electricity is much, much lower carbon than it was 10 years ago. So when you make the change of, you know, we're using a lot less energy and the energy we were using is a lot less carbon, now that totally shifts the balance and yeah. that carbon and steel that we took to build the building. Right, it it's, is, it's the big carbon. It's the big carbon element, yeah. yeah. So that's really changed. And then the other thing that finally that makes it even really pressing right now is because we have such a short time frame to make such huge reductions in our carbon emissions if we're gonna hit our Paris goals or stop uh, runaway climate change. If you look at now the total life cycle impacts of a, of a building, a huge amount of it now is on day one. And it's a shallow increase now, the operating carbon, where it used to be very steep. So we have a, and, and that carbon that's emitted during construction, it's going to be in, it's in the atmosphere already. Right. We have no opportunity to reduce it. So these issues are starting to get on the desks of decision makers and we're starting to see policies be rolled out around the world to start um, tackling embodied carbon. Given the significant impacts that carbon is now having, I mean, clearly everyone listening to this podcast knows that atmospheric and ocean temperatures are rising. Last year was the hottest year ever recorded. In fact, I think the last seven years have been the hottest years ever recorded. What do you think are the key opportunities for reducing carbon in buildings and the cities they're part of? I guess both operating and, and, mm -hmm. and embodied carbon. I think we need to change what we're building our cities out of. Um, there's a big movement these days into mass timber and wood construction. I'm not going to say that everything should be wood. I think there's definitely a place for steel. There's definitely a place for carbon, but there's definitely a place for wood. Yeah. And we're really not even scratching the surface on what we can do with wood from a structural point of view. And it actually responds quite well to a lot of things like earthquake where, you know, you, we've seen examples of the earthquakes in Christchurch, New Zealand, all these buildings were made of steel and concrete and they didn't collapse. They, the structural designers did their job that it didn't fall down, but they were all broken and cracked and they had to actually, um, knock down demolish a lot of them, demolish them yeah, yeah. because it was, it was too expensive to rebuild. Whereas timber can actually respond quite well to some of these seismic events. So the building construction material we're using, but also what we're creating our, you know, open spaces and our streets and our sidewalks, there's opportunities to reduce the urban heat island effect to have more infiltration of the of the water. So I mean, it's it's kind of frustrating because we know what to do as an engineer. That was one of the big wake up calls for me when I did my master's in sustainability and I started researching what should my research topic be. And I started researching, you know, going down the rabbit hole and saw there's hundreds and thousands of solutions that we already have. We're just not doing them. And that's why I was really interested in making that policy connection with the lawyer, <laughs> because it's not, we don't need more. Well, we obviously do need more engineers, but we've got a lot of solutions that we're just not even imp implementing yet. It's, it's deployment. Yeah. yeah. So that's really, I mean, you know, we both know lots of solutions that we can do, but it's about working with the decision makers and cutting through the red tape and trying new innovative things that we know they're going to be beneficial for society. So we just need to figure out how to implement them. 
I think it would be worthwhile at this point for you to elaborate on what some of those other solutions and strategies actually are. What other actions do you think the design and building industry can be using to reduce embodied carbon? Yeah, there's a lot of solutions that we can implement. A bunch of them are material agnostic. They apply to, it doesn't matter what material you're building with. It can be timber, steel, concrete, any of those materials. These solutions I'm about to talk about would would help. One is just being efficient and right-sizing our construction. Engineers have, you know, it's been drilled into us since day one of engineering school to public safety is paramount, which obviously it is. But one way that we can make sure that we are ensuring ample public safety or too much public safety is that we overbuild everything. So we, you know, if you say the column needs to be X meters thick for stability, let's just do X times two meters thick just to just to be extra safe. And obviously I'm not, you know, I'm obviously we need to make sure the buildings are safe, but we don't need to just be wasteful in our over design. Yeah. I, I think for, for engineers, at least in structural engineering, there's a sense of a certain acceptable risk and they want to build enough risk or compensation for risk into it that if someone's using the building differently than it was specified for mm-hmm. th- there's not going to be a problem but that seems to you know go overboard sometimes yeah, it, sometimes it, it, it builds on the code builds on this builds on right. this and all of a sudden there's a lot of safety there's a factors. lot of safety <laughs> factors built in that multiply and they don't if, if you were willing to take uh, it much tighter mm-hmm. and spend more time designing it you could reduce the right the, exactly the, the actual and, and a, quantities exactly and a lot of times you know at the end of the day some industries they get paid based on the amount of product they're selling right so it's they have an incentive to there's, there's yes incentives to, all over the place yeah to overbuild right yeah. and we're not valuing the the carbon associated with that or we're not valuing carbon reductions uh, more more correctly so there's a lot of opportunity to be more efficient and to right size our buildings also something that really needs to be looking at seriously is um, our habit of demolishing buildings and just you know wiping wiping off whatever happens to be there because we want something with a little bit slightly different programmatic uh, ability of the building or you know bigger windows there's a time and place for demolition but it's not every lot we really need to start getting more serious about reusing the existing assets that we've built over the years because there's been a lot of carbon and energy and time and money that have gone into those buildings and nine times out of ten the structure is 100% fine that's not the reason we're taking them down so let's get more thoughtful about reusing that structure and improving upon it but not knocking it all down some of the other things would be having local suppliers. So transportation emissions can be a large impact. So if we're specifying and and getting steel from the other side of the planet and it's getting shipped across, you know, why don't we think about our local producers? We've got great steel mills. All the bunker crude and those ships. That's right. right. Oh yeah, I'm doing studies on, I'm doing some projects on the marine sector and it's a huge carbon footprint. I mean, it's more efficient than obviously planes or um, trucks, but it's it's still a huge carbon impact from the marine sector that we can reduce that. But it it doesn't have any opportunity cost right now. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. there were some sort of carbon tax or budget and it was identified as such, then all of a sudden the, the steel that came from the other side of the world, from China, mm-hmm. would be more costly. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And right now it's there are carbon pricing regimes, but they're, they're not global, obviously. So it's easy for industry to get around them when they when they uh, you know it's like whack-a-ball you put up you put up a carbon regime in one spot and the manufacturers open in the other so we need to have a more coordinated approach to that another thing would be recycled content of materials so using byproducts of other or or waste 
streams from other industrial processes, using that as an input, as an ingredient to the materials we're using to build our structures. And then just durability, you know, having a building that will last longer, that doesn't need to be repaired as often, that doesn't need to have certain treatments added to it every couple of years, like all of that, there's carbon associated with all of that when we have delivery trucks and uh, repair projects going on. So just durability is something that we should always keep in mind too. So the, the, all those strategies, those can apply to any material, but there's also material specific decisions that we can make. So thinking about concrete versus steel versus timber are the three big materials that we use in our construction process in our, you know, in buildings. And I like to say, there's no one material that is best. Uh, there's good and bad sides of all of the materials. Concrete, if it were a country, it would have the third largest emissions because it has more emissions with concrete and cement than you know all the other countries <laughs> except for two in the world. But they know that and they they realize that there's huge opportunities for them if they can reduce their carbon footprint. And they're doing a lot of really great work, uh, the cement and concrete industry, especially in Canada and in Europe. They're looking at you know alternative fuel stocks. They're looking at reducing their cement ratio in the in the concrete. So you have a lower amount of cement in the concrete, and that actually that reduces the carbon footprint because it's the cement itself that um, which is the raw ingredient to the concrete that is the big emitting agent. Um, yeah, the cement when it's being made. That's right. The, yeah. the, the manufacturer cement produces a lot of CO2. That's right. The, the, yeah. the chemical reaction as well as the firing of the kilns. That's right. Um, interestingly, one of our earlier podcast guests, Peter Howard from Pond Technologies, Pond is doing some really exciting stuff with algae bioreactors, and they're working with St. Mary's Cement right. to actually um, take the, the NOx socks and CO2 mm -hmm. out of the emission stream mm -hmm. and turn it into algae. So yeah, they, yeah. they are. They're, they're really looking at how to get that CO2 yeah, level it's, down. It's really amazing what, you know, some of these ideas that are on the drawing board and they're starting to ramp up to production scale. Um, another one is uh, Blue Planet is this company based out of California and they actually take CO2 and turn it into an aggregate. So they're turning it into rock basically. And then that becomes one of the ingredients or one of the inputs to the concrete mix. So they have like pure CO2 that they turn into uh, aggregate for the concrete. So, you know, when some of these technologies like Pond and, and that can be scaled up and put into, you know, mass use, we could actually see a future where concrete could one day become um, a carbon negative, you know, a carbon sink from some of these technologies we're talking about. Although one of the scary things about concrete is the requirement for sand. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know this until I read an article in The Economist, I think, uh, a few weeks back saying there is a shortage around the world of sand mm -hmm. and there's even a sand mafia. Yeah. Well, there's that, no shortage of sand. There's a shortage of good sand, good sand. No, the kind of sand, the silica sand <laughs> that's right. uh, that is required to, to make it. That's, that's right. right. That's yeah. right. Because yeah, there, you need very specific right. properties for it to be a good sand right. for concrete. So it's one of those things that most people don't realize, but it's, there's, we're shipping sand like huge distances because if one region runs out of high quality sand for their concrete, then they have to ship it from, you know, uh, a few hundred kilometers away, yeah. which obviously there's a carbon footprint for that. The other thing I should mention about when we talk about uh, cement is um, there's something called Portland limestone cement. So typical cement is called Portland cement. Um, there's this other version called Portland limestone cement. So it has basically 10% more limestone in it than a normal cement does. And that means a 10% reduction in the carbon footprint of the cement. And this cement has actually been approved by the Canadian Standards Association. It's readily available in almost all parts of Canada. Uh, it has no cost premium and it doesn't impact performance. Uh, so it's really 
like a no-brainer that we should all be using Portland limestone cement. So all the architects listening should tell their spec writers 100%. to make sure that they ask for it. I mean, one, one of the things if don't ask, don't get. Like exactly. if, the, if the cement and concrete companies aren't hearing from it in our specs, mm-hmm. then they're not going to. Well, when I first started it. learning about this, I, I think I had a telephone interview with a concrete manufacturer, and I said, I'm missing something. How can there be an op- this? product that it doesn't cost more or there's no impact on performance and it just has a 10% lower footprint. Like I must be missing something. And he said, no, you're not. It's just exactly what you said. Our clients aren't asking for it. And we have one silo to store our powder, right? Our cement powder. So if no one's asking for it, we're just going to use the standard one. So this is starting to get on the you know agenda of some decision makers. And there's some talks now from policymakers that we're going to use as default the Portland limestone cement going forward, unless there's a reason not to, which I haven't heard a good reason why we wouldn't. But um, that's something, as you said, that any architect, any engineer should be asking your spec writer, how can we, or can we use Portland limestone cement? Um, and 99% of the time, I think the answer is going to be yes, it's, it's, there's no downside to it. So that's what we can do on the concrete side of equation. But also the one thing that we haven't talked about yet is timber and mass timber. And I'm really seeing a huge surge in the interest in mass timber in the past couple years. Every conference I go to, there's more and more mass timber sessions where architects are showing you know, beautiful, beautiful pictures of, and of these buildings they've put up that are, they're carbon sinks. Right when the timber has what was growing as a tree, it was sucking carbon out of the atmosphere and doing all these other great co-benefits at the same time, and then we're turning it into a beautiful building that is really trapping the carbon out of the atmosphere. Oh yeah, one cubic meter of wood is equivalent of one metric ton of CO two. It's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. And, and, and as long and as it's, it's free, from, we don't free, have to pay anything but, for that but, to happen. But, but the only really really important caveat, and, and this is really key is it's got to be mass timber from sustainably harvest forest. 100%. Because if it's like from clear cut, then all of a sudden you're going to lose all 60% yeah. of the carbon stored in the soil. Yeah. And if clear cut, it means it comes out. And that's one of the examples I use when I tell people that, you know, I've seen examples of buildings made of timber that aren't a good carbon story because it was from a clear cut forest. And I've seen examples of, you know, buildings made from concrete. That's a great carbon story because they've done all these, you know, use these technologies we talked about. So that's why I'm very material agnostic. I think there's things we can do across all materials to reduce their carbon footprint. And there's a, there's a time and place for all these materials as well. So also it's so beautiful. Oh yeah. And they I mean, it's it got smells a great. Yeah. It's just... <laughs> so I'm hopeful we're going to see a lot more timber buildings. Well, there's, a, there's, I think there's, five or six now under design in Toronto, uh, which, and there was only one, I think a couple of years ago. So it's definitely uh, accelerating there. And I know you've done some work on yes, timber design as we're well, right? Yes, we're actually doing a, a community college. I can't say which one right now because it has been public announced, but it's six story mass timber. It's just wonderful. Nice, yeah. nice. Actually, we did some analysis on a timber structure in Toronto and we found that the embodied carbon of that structure was, it was almost a third uh, reduced from a, from a typical concrete structure. And what was really interesting was when you looked at that and compared it to operational savings over like a 10 year window, right? So as you know, in the design process, our architects and engineers look at various different energy systems and how efficient they, they need to be. So there's tier one, tier two, tier three, tier four in the Toronto Green Standard, for example, each having more energy efficiency requirements. And it costs a lot of money to upgrade to the next version because the, you know, the, the machinery is more advanced and, and it's, it costs more money. But if you were to look at the carbon savings from going from a tier one to a tier four, so going the most aggressive energy reductions we know right now on an operational side, that would save less carbon than 
changing your material from concrete to timber. And you're actually in a very important place to be sort of informing the industry because your whole world's about carbon mm -hmm. and actually calculating the kind of inputs to a building of carbon. So I, I think one of the problems is engineers and architects are just not aware of the life cycle costs for carbon, embodied carbon. By the way, we, we should probably talk a little bit about embodied carbon and the difference between upfront and embodied carbon. Mm -hmm. But uh, we can get to that. Yeah. Well, yeah, we can. Let's talk about that now because embodied carbon is basically all of the carbon associated with the extraction of the raw materials, the transportation to the manufacturer, the manufacturing process, and then transportation to the construction site, uh, the construction process. And then there's also the use phase. So things like repair, rehabilitation, replacement of windows or the roof or anything that you need to replace. Um, and then there's also end of life. So decommissioning, demolition, as we said, transportation to a landfill or a recycling facility. So all the carbon associated with all of those uh, phases, that's what, when and we add them all up together, that's what we mean when we say embodied carbon. So there's a new term though that's started to be used and there was a World Green Building Council report released last year that kind of is getting the, the term more traction. The study was called bringing embodied carbon upfront. And they've started using this term called upfront carbon, which is really just a subset of embodied carbon. It's all of the stuff that happens before the use so phase starts. Yeah. That's right. So that's the where the products are made, how they're made, and then the construction process. And then when people move into the building, that's where it stops. So the reason I really like the focus on upfront carbon is it really simplifies a lot of things because when we talk about the use phase and the future use and the end of life, that's all in the future, right? We have to make assumptions about that. So that it, it makes it easy for people to say, well, that's that assumption I don't agree with, you know, that assumption is not going to be true in the future. But yeah, for example, it could be designed to be disassembled. That's right. right? And used elsewhere. So all of a sudden it's not throwing it away. Mm -hmm it's actually reusing it. That's right. And also we don't know how efficient we're going to be in our waste right. re recovery and all those kinds of things in the future. So when you keep the end of life and the use phase, those future phases, it's there's a lot of uncertainty there. So I really like the idea of focusing on upfront carbon because as an engineer, as an architect, we have 100% control over that upfront carbon stream. We can change the ingredients we're using, you know, where we're getting our materials from, the types of trucks that we're transporting them in, um, the type of energy we're using on the construction site. We really have 100% control over that upfront carbon piece. So I'm, I like to, I'm starting to focus on upfront as a subset of embodied because it's simpler and we really can reduce and eliminate all of that upfront carbon. And that should be the goal. Cool. Uh, what about policy developments that are happening now that will move us towards lower embodied? carbon or, you know, whether it's upfront yeah. or like yeah. total life cycle. So I have got a long list actually, cause I'm, I'm actually part of a group called the embodied carbon network, which I would uh, recommend anyone listening to join. If you're interested in this topic, it's free to join. You just go online and um, sign up. If you Google the embodied carbon network, you'll, you'll see it. It's a bunch of folks in the manufacturing and green building industry who are, you know, excited about this issue and trying to reduce embodied carbon, but I'm the head of their policy subgroup. So this is kind of my, <laughs> my bread and butter is helping governments understand this and helping them make better decisions to drive down embodied carbon. So I should probably carbon. ask what are the most important ones? <laughs> that's right. That's right. So I, I always like to, you know, start with a Canadian example. So Vancouver is really leading the way on this front. They have a, a goal now to reduce their 
embodied carbon by 40% by 2030. And they've actually started releasing RFPs that say, you know, part of the project is you need to show how you're going to be aligned with our embodied carbon reduction goals and targets. So they're asking their suppliers now, you know, what's your strategy? How are you going to reduce the embodied carbon of your construction? So that's, that's a really great policy. And actually in Vancouver, for the past couple of years, they've been requiring full life cycle assessments on the buildings uh, that are undergoing rezoning applications. So that's the Canadian example. The other big one I always like to bring up is California. They're, you know, as with a lot of environmental things, they're really leading the way again on this. They have a policy called Buy Clean California, and it's specifically requiring all state purchases of steel, glass, and insulation to be below a certain carbon threshold. So they've said, you know, we're not going to purchase steel or glass or, or insulation unless it is below this certain carbon cap. They haven't actually published what that carbon cap is. It's kind of a three-year phase-in for the policy. So last year, they were requiring disclosure, basically, of the construction materials. And then once they get a good data sample of what the carbon content of the materials being disclosed are, then they're going to use that to inform what the cap will be. So that cap, I think, is going to be released January 1st, 2021. And then they're going to be only purchasing, quote unquote, carbon efficient versions of those materials as of uh, July 2021. So that's really exciting. And a lot of other American jurisdictions are following the lead. Uh, Washington, Oregon, New York State, and also the federal government in the US, they're all looking at creating similar buy clean policies that follows the lead of California. So yeah, those were those are the kind of the big ones. Also, I should mention in Portland, Oregon, they have a green concrete purchasing requirement. So similar to what Buy Clean California is doing, but I, I should have said Buy Clean California isn't including concrete right now. They, that's kind of for version two of the standard they're going to bring them in. But um, Portland said, we're only going to focus on concrete. So the same approach in the same law as California, but applicable specifically to concrete. Um, and then in Toronto, I mean, we don't have any requirements yet around around embodied carbon, but I think that's going to change relatively soon. Uh, I know the folks that have developed the Toronto Green Standard have been thinking about this. The folks at Waterfront Toronto have been thinking about this. It's, you know, it's on everyone's mind. Yeah, uh, and once you get some big clients in big cities mm -hmm, requiring it, mm -hmm. then it becomes an industry standard. Yeah, I like to say to people, I think this is where energy modeling was a decade ago, right? Where it was the, it was the really green building, maybe the lead buildings that were doing that. But once the industry realized how valuable it was and what a huge benefit it could be to the projects, it's going to flip really quickly. It's going to be one of these tipping points, right? And it's going to be in the, in my view, it's going to be part of the building codes uh, within, you know, within a decade for sure. What about on a community scale? What do you think some of the key things we should be thinking about? Well, there? on the community scale, District energy is a big is a big thing. Um, when I was in Helsinki, every road that was ever under construction that you'd always see a big pipe in the ground because it was and it wasn't a sewer pipe it was it was a heat pipe. Mm -hmm. And ninety nine percent of the buildings in Helsinki are on district energy. So this is when we're sharing the hot water between buildings. In Helsinki, they actually use coal. I think they're still using coal for some of their energy generation, but they use 100% of the energy in it. Mm -hmm. They burn it for yeah. electricity, and then all that heat, they pump in these pipes underground and heat all the buildings with it. So it's actually not as 
bad as a system because they're using 100% of that energy. I'm not saying we should be using coal going forward, but we can use that same idea of, of using the heat in all of these systems and connecting them underground and having these synergies between the buildings. There's a new um, data center that they're installing in my neighborhood. And someone was telling me the other day, Toronto is an ideal space for data centers because we have very low risk of seismic events, of sea level rise type flooding and other things like that. So we could actually be see ourselves as a center for data centers and there's a lot of heat that there's gets a lot generated. of heat generated right? yeah so yeah. we should definitely be looking on how we can save that heat and pump it into the neighboring condos so that they don't have to have boilers anymore so there's a lot of these synergies and time of day um working with the you know the demands and the supply between the different building and their uses a lot of uh, architects and planners and engineers listen to this podcast. So if you had to pick three of the most important things that architects and engineers and planners can do to address these challenges and exploit the opportunities, what would you, what do you suggest they be? So the first thing I would say is, it's really easy. It's just to ask for a lower carbon option. You don't need to have all the answers, but you need to have the right questions, right? So, so it starts with the client. Yeah, yeah, totally. I talk to um, a lot of construction material manufacturers, and if I say to them, why don't you do this process, or why haven't you done this thing to lower your carbon? And they say, well, because no one's asked me to do it yet. It's not, it's too expensive. It's, it's not that they're like no, stopping, no, no, we won't they do go, that. Well, they just don't. We, we don't do what our clients yeah. ask us. That's their answer, right? And I've, I've, you know, I've heard examples of cements that are low concrete or you know, curing times or, or different strength classes that we can use. And there's a whole series of things that we can do. But at the end of the day, these manufacturers, they, they say, we do what our clients ask. We're not going to change anything about, the, about our recipe unless it's from a client. So, and then I ask them, if someone were to ask you to do that, would it impact the cost? Would it impact the, you know, the service that they get out of it? And mostly it's no. Yeah. Just so, so that's one thing that it's doesn't, it's not that difficult to just ask, is there an option for us to do this in a lower carbon way? The second is to disclose, I would say, to tell people what you're doing. And even if what you're disclosing is we asked all of our manufacturers for lower carbon options, and unfortunately, none of them were able to provide it because of this, right? And give, yeah. give the reasoning, give the answers. That really does help to move the yardstick. It shows that someone's interested in these topics and also when you disclose, then someone else, it pushes them to disclose. And we really need better data. And, and, and especially in this area of embodied carbon that I'm talking about, we still, we know it's an issue, but we still don't have very good data. It's actually shocking the lack of data in, you know, what is the carbon content of a plastic material that's made in Toronto? Like, we, don't, we really, really don't know that. There's a large um, National Research Council of Canada project going on right now to get better data into that. And, and we're, and I'm part of that program and we're going to start implementing that into national building codes and, and standards and, and infrastructure decision making. But we really need to start asking and then disclosing. What and the and I think find. the request for disclosure brings with it the need for those manufacturers to start measuring it because it's not that they're necessarily want to hide it. They mm -hmm. just, as you said, don't know. Mm -hmm. They don't know. No one's asked before. Yeah. No one's required it before. Right. And there was w just one quick example. I'm going to try to not go on too many tangents today, but one quick That's example. That's okay. There's lots of time. Don't worry. If the tangent's <laughs> interesting, go for it. One of the, one of the stories I like to tell about disclosure is there's a government building in the state of Washington where they wanted to have a very low embodied carbon concrete, which is great. But the really innovative thing was they said, every material that we use on the project, we are gonna disclose the carbon information about it. And that 
in one project flipped the whole disclosure discussion and all and made so much more information available in the state of Washington that the manufacturers who were doing all of the concrete, they didn't have that data before, but they said, well, right. we, we want this project. So we're going to yeah. hire the right people and get the data out there and post it. And over, you know, over the course of the three years of that project, there went from like one or two material data sheets out there that had carbon content to, you know, a few hundred. Because and, the and, industry and I suspect that in the bidding process, they took the cost of doing that analysis into account. And everyone had to, so it would it wouldn't have been a competitive disadvantage to do it. That's right, because everyone was forced to do That's it. That's right, and and from the owner's point of view, all they had to do was add a few words into their yeah. RFP, right? Yeah, we want this material, and we we want the data yeah. disclosed. Yeah, it's very and, easy. And and once they've done it for one, they can do it for anyone else because they've it's not changing. The formula doesn't change. The amounts may change. Exactly. Yeah. And then the third thing I'd say is to dream big, but don't be afraid to start small. Um, so elaborate on that. Yeah. So one of the projects I was recently on, uh, working on one of the owners, they said, we know that we're not doing everything we possibly can do, but we're going to do one thing on this project. Then that's going to be standard practice. And then on the next project, we're going to do one more thing. So they started by having a bigger picture vision and right. saying on this project, we can do this piece of it. Exactly. But we have a sense, a roadmap now right. for as we move forward, what to do. And if you take embodied carbon as an example, it could be such an overwhelming task to say, all of the materials that we use and specify, we need to find lower carbon solutions. So let's not worry about that. Let's say on this project, we're going to go find lower carbon concrete. And on the next project, we'll use that low carbon concrete. And then we'll find a low carbon carpet. And then on the next one, we're going to really prioritize low carbon drywall. So you don't have to do it all at once, but you have to start somewhere and you have to make sure you're always working towards you know, a lower carbon solution in, in the long run. So you co-founded an interdisciplinary climate strategy and solution consultancy, as you talked about in the introduction. Tell us about some of the more effective and consequential ideas you are now exploring with your clients. Sure. So there's two main areas. So I actually do work in both of those first two camps that you said. You, you started with mitigation, yeah. which is embodied carbon. I'm doing some quite interesting work on that, both from owners and you know people that are putting up new buildings and designing new buildings. But even more interestingly, I think, is the work that I've done with governments on that. Because as I said, governments are starting to realize that this is a big issue and they're not exactly sure how to tackle it. So we worked with the provincial government, um, with the Ministry of Infrastructure to kind of do some analysis, do some um, what's out there, who's doing what, do some best practice. Um, and when you say mitigation, what do you, mm -hmm. what is being mitigated? Do you mean reducing the carbon or the mitigation for the impacts of carbon? What is uh, Reducing the carbon being emitted in the right. construction process. In the construction yeah. process. So, so I've talked quite a bit about that already, but, but the other area that I'm working on is that number two that you said, which is adaptation and becoming more resilient. So we're doing some quite interesting work with the YMCA of Greater Toronto, actually. They're one of our main clients. We've worked with them since the start. And they've really become a leader in Canada and North America, really, on recognizing that they are a climate organization. When we, we first started having conversations with some of the senior leadership and they said, this is an important topic, climate change, but we're really too busy settling Syrian refugees to give it the time that it deserves. And, and then, why are there Syrian refugees? Well, exactly, and, right? and are there gonna be more? And, oh, exactly. Right. And we made those right. connections and we're like, you're gonna be the ones that are gonna be right. holding the bag when all these climate refugees yeah. are flooding into Canada. And then they, the light bulb went on oh, and they're oh. like, oh yeah, you're right. So 
they really have stepped up and have really taken a leadership position on this. And now we're helping them um, to develop uh, what we're calling community resilience centers. So we're basically turning their health and fitness centers into areas that the public are welcome to come to in the event of a climate change emergency. So we're installing more resilient backup energy systems and generators so that if the whole grid goes down right. and everyone's dark, the Y will be able to generate their own electricity. They're going to have batteries on site. You'll be able to charge electric vehicles there. That will be... And phones, whatever one needs. Phones. When well, everything that, goes down, everyone wants to charge exactly. their phones. And just go take a shower, right. you know, just yeah. a place to go and be safe. So um, it's kind of our job to help make that a reality. So we're working with governments to try to find them funding. We're trying, we're finding partners. So that's, that's Is this really... something they're doing in Toronto or is this going to be a national or international initiative or, or, or they're just exploring that now? So right now it's the Toronto, it's like the greater Toronto YT, uh, YMCA. So it includes Mississauga and Vaughan and, and some other uh, neighboring municipalities. But the YMCA of greater Toronto, which most people don't realize is actually the biggest YMCA in the world. Really? Yes. So they have... The central Y... Or, yeah. or the Y the, and all the organization. Oh, organization. Yeah, because yeah. They, they're actually regionally right. governed. Yeah. So the YMCA of GTA is its own entity, and it's it has more operations than any other YMCA entity in the world. So they are really seen as a leader, and a specifically on this issue, um, some of the senior leadership now in Toronto are speaking to the other Y leadership when they are at conferences. And I was going to say that could be one of the most important things that they contribute is oh, not just yeah. the physical resilience center, but the lessons learned on oh, yeah. how to do it. Definitely. And they and they've seen that, you know, they've seen otherwise having to respond to these events that they weren't planning for it. So now we're now now you know we saw at I think it was Hurricane Sandy in New York that the Wise became the de, a de facto emergency response center and there was no plan for that. There was no backup energy systems in place. We also saw that happen in um Hurricane Harvey in Houston and similarly in Florida with recent um hurricanes. So we're seeing that when these events happen, the why is one of the places that the public go to. So we're trying to just be proactive in that and plan ahead. And and, and hopefully it's not going to happen in Toronto. But um, unfortunately, we need to be ready for when it, when well, it does. Well, that, that's very interesting because one of my partners here at Dialogue specializes in libraries, public libraries. And one of the discussions that we're having with a number of clients is how do libraries become resilient centers? Mm. Because like the YMCA, mm -hmm. libraries are also very public places where people come for other than just reading. Mm -hmm. So it may be the lessons learned from the Y could be passed on to other public institutions. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it may not come from above, but it certainly should be shared. Yeah, definitely. One of the problems we're facing in sort of transitioning to a lower carbon world, I mean, it seems we have all the engineering and innovation we need, it's sort of getting it to happen. The shift to renewable energies like solar PV and wind power is rapidly taking place. I mean, I think uh, it was a year ago or so that solar PV had hit net parity so that it was the same or lower cost per joule than burning coal. So it's certainly, it's not at all impossible, but you've got people, energy analysts like Vaclav Schmil, the Canadian energy analyst saying that historically it takes 50 years for a transition to happen. I mean, maybe not an emergency like this, but how do we bridge that gap? How do we bridge the, the gap of transitioning into renewables and, and zero carbon energy from a system that's pretty much embedded? Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on that? Well, I agree that 
that it needs to take a lot less than 50 years. Yeah, we I don't think, have 50 years, <laughs> well, right? Yeah. When I read that, I was like, no, sorry, we don't have 50 years. Yeah, and that might may, that might be the case for an organic transition. Yeah. But uh, as I said before, like this is an emergency. We have 10 years, the UN is yeah. saying, before right away climate change takes hold. So we really need to make decisions like our house is on fire because it right. is, <laughs> right? So I believe that governments and decision makers should not make any decisions that would lead to increased carbon emissions. And if you and investment in that infrastructure, right? And if yeah. there's a benefit to that, and you need to, then you have to have a direct reduction in some other way through an offset or some other project that's reducing the carbon. I understand we might still need to emit carbon for some new projects, but we are smart enough that we can find ways to reduce it in another place. And it should be even like a two to one ratio. If we're going to reduce carbon in this on this project, we need to have twice as much reductions elsewhere. Right. And we can do that. We just need to prioritize that and. When we talk about human health and safety, this is, in my mind, the biggest threat to future public safety. Yeah. So why are we making decisions that are going to make that worse? So I just I just totally disagree with the idea that we have 50 years. I think we need to, frankly, just not allow for certain things going forward. For example, the internal combustion engine. Like We have very good technology for electric vehicles. We know how to do that. And... You know, we've had situations in the past where the government has outlawed things even before we have a solution and a replacement because they realize we can't do this anymore. It's just not acceptable. This is going to be outlawed within five years. And you know what? People will figure out a way to fix it. And now we're in a situation where we've, we have the solutions and people are using it. And it's almost like cost parity. And we're still allowing them yeah. to do this thing that's extremely polluting and damaging for society. So I just think we really need our leaders to lead and explain why this is required. We're not going to get political here, but a lot of leaders, they are just going for the lowest common denominator and saying the thing that's the easiest to say and, you know, has the most um, immediate, it's the most immediately acceptable by people, but they're not explaining why people well, need and, to and also, think in a different uh, way. The, in a democracy, which thank goodness we have, the politicians are looking for their constituency to give them support. And mm -hmm. if they don't get a sense that that's really on their minds, then they probably won't be forthcoming. I think this next election in Canada, for example, climate change will be mm -hmm. on the radar. But there's another thing I suspect that's a problem, and we've talked about this in, in other podcast um, episodes, and that's the problem of willful blindness. Have, have you read Margaret Hefferman's book, Willful Blindness? I haven't, no. It's, it's, it's actually, she's a great writer, but it's hugely depressing because she, she explores... <laughs> Our uh, human beings almost infant capacity to deceive ourselves, to, right. to believe what we want to believe, no matter how at odds it is with reality. So uh, do you ever find that willful blindness is, is an issue when you're dealing with clients or a constituency or a group? Like, and, and what do you do about it? Is it something you need to deal with? Yeah, well, it's definitely real. And as you said, it's extremely depressing. <laughs> but I've... For me, I just don't, I, you know, honestly, I don't spend my energy trying to convince someone. I say, these are the facts. This is my opinion. And I would love to have a debate with you if you are open to, you know, hearing other people's opinions. And I'm always open to being challenged and being proven that I was maybe even wrong or wasn't thinking in the clearest way. And when people aren't open to that, it just shows that they're not, you know, they're, they have their belief and it's just... It's a belief not, as, a, as, as opposed to something rational. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm 
I don't think we have the time to deal with that. I think there's always going to be a segment of the population, you know, flat earthers, like, <laughs> come on. Um, so I, I just, you know what, I just don't worry about that. I think that the vast majority of people are level-headed and understand science and evidence and, you know, that we have consequences for the decisions we're making. So I'd rather spend my time on that. What do you think is missing from the discussion of climate change? Are there any other questions or better questions we should be asking ourselves? Well, one of the things that I like to talk about is how to like mobilize people, right? So I've heard a big, a big debate recently about some people are saying, you know, we need to, we need to scare people into action. And other people are saying we need to just tell them about the good future that we're going to create. But I think it's kind of somewhere in, in the middle there. I've, a lot of people have talked about a World War II mobilization, but it, that's, I like to think about the moonshot and mm. President Kennedy there's a great, great documentary about this. It's a six part mini series called when we left the earth and looking back as someone in 2019, this was all, you know, history for us. But when you watch this documentary, it shows you the level of technology and, you know, about what they knew about space and what they knew about science. When president Kennedy made that promise to get to the moon within 10 years, they had no idea how, do you do it? how they were going to yeah. do it. And it, it just was amazing to show the power of human ingenuity. And when we're really committed to something and we're all on the same side about it, we can do unbelievable things. Yeah. And, and the documentary shows, you know, you don't just get to the moon, but you do, you figure out how to build a rocket and then you figure out how to launch the rocket and it's going to take you years, but then you'll get that part right. And then in the next part, you figure out how to go into earth orbit and it's, it's one step at a time. But we really can do it if we just commit to it and say, this is, you know, this is what has to be done and let's figure out how to do it together. So I think we need to get all of us on the same page. It's really upsetting that climate change has become partisan in some circles because it's really about the future of humanity. Of humanity. Like it really everyone. couldn't be less yeah, partisan, partisan than that. <laughs> so it's kind of unbelievable that it, that it's happened. Uh, so hopefully, I'm, I'm hope, hopeful that we can all try to get on the same page and we're kind of seeing the last dying breaths of the denier movement and people who think, you know, this isn't something that we need to focus on. And and especially with the younger generation as well. I mean, um, you know, kids today, they understand that this is going to be the defining issue of right. their lifetime. So I'm hopeful that we'll be able to... Uh, to get that innovative, inspirational approach and, and have the can-do attitude and solve the issues. To have that inspired vision moving forward, who do we need to be part of that conversation? Like, who's missing from the conversation now that needs to be part of the conversation? Well, definitely all the people employed in <laughs> internal combustion engines, which I just <laughs> mentioned. And fossil fuel industry. And, and, and well, fossil fuel and well, the energy they're all industry. probably very worried about their future. So yeah. I guess they have to be part of the discussion. Like, where? how do I fit in? Mm -hmm. Definitely. I mean, we've seen what happens when we um, write off segments of society. Yeah. We need to have everyone be part of the solution. We need to have everyone be in, like engaged. And there's so much work to do. We need all the people that we can possibly get. Like, we can... We can turn all those places where they're getting these energies that are, that might be polluting. We can have all those highly skilled workers building things that are low, low carbon products. We need more wind turbines. We need more solar panels. Um, we need more electric cars, right? And we need low carbon building materials. So there's there's plenty of work to go around, uh, and we need to have an active program that matches those people with those solutions. So you it's know, the end of the fossil fuel energy, but it's not the end of the 
oil industry because there's so many other products Mm -hmm. that are not necessarily harmful. Like it's Mm -hmm. an organic product, Mm -hmm. right? It's organic chemistry. Mm -hmm. So it's a question of how do you do it in a way that where there's no carbon produced. Yeah. And, or that we can take the carbon out of the yes. atmosphere at a rate yeah. that we're putting it in. So again, it's not, I'm not saying like we can never burn anything because I'm, I'm a realist. I understand that we're going to have air travel. We're going to have other things like that, but we have the science and the abilities to make carbon neutral fuels. We can take out of the air what we're putting back into it. So we really just need to focus on, on making those solutions a reality. And what do you think about the notion of progress? Uh, I think most people who care deeply about our planet implicitly believe in it otherwise why bother but lately that belief is being tested brexit the rise of the right in europe and trump in the states are all giving progressives and liberals great anxiety about progress Mm -hmm. what do you think about the idea of progress and the idea that we can make a positive difference in the world well I, you definitely believe we can make a positive difference given what you're doing i do and i think i think progress isn't linear that we know there's going to be setbacks we know there's going to be negative things happening, but I really strongly believe that the current era is the best time in human history, really, that there's never been, we've never had this level of health or peace, prosperity in our history. And we just need to keep that vision and know that we can get through this. And there are solutions that we can take to to get there. One of there's also the whole talk about geoengineering, which a lot of people are get afraid of, or you know they have their very well-founded uh, reservations about. But there's different forms of geoengineering. I, I would not be for anything that is irreversible to our planet, like what, the, what is it, iron seeding of the ocean mm. or sulfides in, yeah. the, in the high atmosphere. Yeah. Because once you do that, you can't put the toothpaste back in the toothpaste right. tube. But there are other things that, I mean, I've only read about in science fiction, but they seem like they would work to me. Like, for example, a solar shade. Like, mm-hmm. why can't we build, with all the technology we have, why can't we build some kind of a satellite that is out there far in orbit that can block a small amount of the solar radiation? I mean, I'm not saying that we can do that tomorrow, but if we if we said in 10 years we're going to have this, you know, this uh, technology and we're going to be able to reduce our uh, solar radiation and adjust it, and it's not a cure-all, but there are solutions... And I'm not saying we don't need to reduce our emissions, but that could be something that could help us on the way. It could buy us some time when you're seeing, you know, whole cities go up in flames from wildfires and you're seeing, we're going to start to see coastal cities go underwater. I think that's when these ideas that might seem a little crazy and out there are, they're going to really come to the forefront. So (laughs) we do have progress. We are going forward, um, but we just need to make sure that we keep ahead of the curve before all of that comes crashing down, which is a reality. You need to stay vigilant and you need to always fight for a better future. So what keeps you going when things are looking dark? What gives you hope for the future? Well, I think it's that humans are just so adaptable. I think we will adjust. I have every faith in the future of humanity. We just might be a small, a much smaller group by the time all of this shakes out. But the the point here is to try to reduce the amount of suffering that happens to 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 those around the world. So we really are great at adapting. It's just maybe we're over the carrying capacity that we can have at a certain level without some kind of major technological breakthrough. So it is hard, though, to to be honest, to have hope in in all things because unfortunately the more you know about these issues the more depressing you can yeah. it can get 
And there's people now that aren't having children because they don't think that there's a good future for their children. So that's kind of sad. Uh, but I think we just need to keep working and making tomorrow the best we can. And that's all we can really do. And what kind of advice would you give listeners about how they can make a difference in addressing the challenge we, we now face? I'd say just discuss if, if, climate change is important to you, which I think it is if you're listening to the podcast and you're still <laughs> listening to us talk, um, just talk about it. Talk about it with those around you. It shouldn't be a, you know, a taboo discussion. You know, as human beings, we're really social creatures and we want to know what our family and friends think and our neighbors think. And as you said, if the politicians understand that this is really an important issue for people, then they're going to make changes. And the only way to really make that happen is really to talk about it and and look for every opportunity as as i said we i wouldn't expect anyone to totally change their life in one day to be lower carbon but every you know every week every month we can make one lower carbon decision and build that into our life and if we all did that then you know in the long run we would be able to get to where we need to go as we're coming to the end of the interview i like to ask three rapid fire questions just to sort of give the audience some sense of where you're coming from. Are you up for that? Sure. Okay. <laughs> so the first question is what books related to these issues do you most often recommend or gift to people? So I actually have two books that I really love. One is kind of from the past and it's about nuts and bolts of city living called the death and life of great American cities by Jane, Jane Jacobs. Jacobs. Uh, who spent the, One of my the favorite books. end of her life in Toronto. She was a proud Torontonian at the end. Um, and it's all about how seemingly unrelated or small decisions can hugely change people's lives. And her context was urban design. So, you know, how changing the street grid could mean more people are outside and, and we have a more better community and we have less violence. So something that you wouldn't necessarily think or you know, the size of the windows in a building or how many lanes of traffic, just things that are really connected to the nuts and bolts of designing our urban spaces, how it had a huge impact on, on people's well-being. So I really love that book. And then the other one that's kind of like out there and it's more science fiction related is The Three-Body Problem, which is a Chinese uh, science fiction, which it's it's kind of taken off i think they're going to make a movie about it as well um, but it's actually a trilogy um, but the first book of the trilogy is called the three-body problem and it's uh, all about what potential futures could look like and i think that solar sail thing that i talked about is one of the things from that book but it's just unbelievable to see the range of human imagination and what people in science fiction can think of and and often a lot of the technologies like our cell phones today look at i mean that was science fiction 10 years ago so it's really not totally outside of the realm of possibility to think that we can do audacious, unbelievable things. Um, so I really like to ground my thinking in those two realities, like nuts and bolts. How do we design our streets for every day? But also like, let's dream big because we can do amazing things. Yeah. That's cool. Second question. What key things would you teach a first year university class to help them better understand how to create a more sustainable, regenerative world? So I think I would say just don't blindly follow what others have said. If it makes sense, use your, you know, use your own judgment. The people that made the rules are just like you. They just 
were around for a few more years and met more people or, you know, they, they got to that space, but they fundamentally are just a human that just, it was just an idea. So even the most, you know, unbelievable, you know, thing that we think this is the way it has to be. It's not really the case. We can challenge these, these things. Uh, everything that we've created in our society was thought up by someone. So you can be the person that thinks up of a better way to do something. So I just think people need to have the freedom to dream big and think that they can change their realities around them. And third question, if you could publish a full page spread in the Sunday New York Times or any newspaper that you wanted, <laughs> of anything you wanted, written or graphic, what would it be? For me, it would be a letter, a template letter that someone can use to send to the decision makers and the politicians saying, you know, this is, for me, it would be about climate change. This is the most important thing as a society that we're facing, the most important issue. And I recognize that we need to make changes and we need to make sacrifices, but these are all of the reasons why it's a thing that we must do. And I think to give people the ability to put their own, I'd say a template, cause I want, I'd have blanks where people could fill out their own feelings. But I think so many people feel that, but they don't really know how to express articulate. it or articulate yeah. it and who to, who to t tell it to. So I'd kind of try to give folks a way to channel what they're feeling and send it to the people who are actually making the right decision or making the decisions, so that hopefully they're the right decisions for the future that we, are, we all hope we can achieve. And you could probably put a URL link to take them to a template. <laughs> yeah, so it would be a scanner. word file. So it'd be even easier. Exactly. Uh, uh, and to bring our conversation to a close, what request would you make of listeners about what they can do to be part of making a difference and meeting the challenges of the 21st century imperative? So I think I'm just going to repeat myself, unfortunately, which is to talk about it and to do a little one little thing um, and integrate that into your life and then do one other little thing. You know, something like meatless Mondays. <laughs> I love food. I love meat, but I can have meatless Monday. I'm not, I'm not going to become a vegan, unfortunately, overnight. Maybe in a few years, maybe I might. But we can do little things and we shouldn't be afraid to do a little thing like that. And also to talk about the challenges. Like, don't only talk about the things that you're doing great because that's the only way that we learn. For me, I'm really guilty of flying too much. It's, it's part of my life. I go to conferences. I go on vacation. I visit friends and family. I'm not proud of it, but it's just kind of a reality. So I'm really looking forward to those carbon neutral fuels to electric yeah. planes. But if we don't talk about those things, then we're not going to materialize. We're not going to materialize them. We're not going to show the market that there's a need for that. So let's not only talk about our successes, but let's also talk about the things that we're struggling with as well. But I think if we talk, if we all talk about these things, if we support each other and, you know, we do one, one more thing every, every year or whatever the timescale we want to talk about is, that's all we can really do. But it will, it will have a big impact when we all do it together. That's great. Thanks very much, Ryan. Thanks for having me. It was great. You can find links to more information about this podcast and to notes about the books and references we've discussed at tfcipodcast.com. And if you like the podcast, please let us know by rating it on the Apple iTunes podcast website and by sponsoring the podcast on our Patreon sponsor page at patreon.com forward slash tfcipodcast. This podcast is ad-free and relies entirely on listener support from people like you. So... If you find our podcast interesting and valuable, please consider becoming a patron. 
Your sponsorship will not only help us cover the cost of production, but we will also be spending 50 cents of every sponsorship dollar to plant trees. To do this, we have formed a partnership with Community Forest International, who will not only be planting seedlings for you, but taking care of them to make sure they continue to grow and absorb carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So please head over to the Patreon page and become a sponsor. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.